If you will join me in Galatians chapter 3. Continue in our series through the book of Galatians. This morning in chapter 3, we will be looking at verses 6 through 9. The title of our sermon is Counted as Righteous. And our key words for worshipers in training are righteous, saved, and justified. Now, back in January of this year, there was an article in that bastion of conservative news, Huffington Post. It was entitled, Newsboy's former member George Perticus is now an outspoken atheist. The article opens this way. One of the original members of the world-renowned Christian rock band has come out as an atheist. George Perticus, an early member of the Newsboys, said he's lost his faith in God and that the band's current members aren't as squeaky clean as they appear to be. Perticus wrote about his faith journey in a blog. Quote, I always felt uncomfortable with the strict rules imposed by Christianity. All I wanted to do was create and play rock and roll. And yet most of the attention I received was focused on how well I maintained the impossible standards of religion. I wanted my life to be measured by my music, not by my ability to resist temptation. The musician also had a few choice words for the band members who made up Newsboys today, none of whom were in the original lineup. He says, quote, The truth is, from someone who knows what went on then and what goes on now, The newsboys aren't as holy as they profess. Instead of wearing a mask of righteousness, they should acknowledge that they are struggling as much as everyone else, end quote. Now, his comments reflect something that is very common among those who are of the more militant so-called atheist variety these days. The claim for many of them is that they used to be Christians, but they read something or they studied something and they came to their senses and then they were no longer able to be Christians. After all, who wants to live a life, in his words, with strict rules imposed on them while being expected to maintain, quote, the impossible standards of religion? And of course, ensuring that those who are Christians are identified as hypocrites is atheist rhetoric 101. But there's two important things that most people will miss when hearing a story like this or reading something like this. The first thing is this. The Bible is abundantly clear that nobody was a Christian who now is a Christian or is no longer a Christian now, I mean. In other words, you can't stop being a Christian if you truly are one. 1 John 2.19 says of those who have departed from the faith that, quote, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. In other words... There are those who believed for a time that they were Christians, but eventually they walk away from the faith. But it's not that they were Christians and then they stopped. They were never Christians in the first place. They were just imposters. 
The second thing I want to point out is perhaps a bit more difficult to identify, and it's in the way that faith is described in these stories. You see, the Christianity that our friend described has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the central focus of all of Christian life. The gospel that he understood when he thought he was a Christian was hopelessly confused with the law. And so his faith was placed in the wrong thing. His faith is what, in what he could do instead of what Jesus had already done. And so when he struggled to do that very thing, he was done. And ultimately, if a person confuses the gospel with the law, their faith must be in themselves. So, Perdiccas never had faith in Christ. He always had faith in himself. So the jump to atheism was not that big of a step. But what about you? How do you define faith? And if I were to ask you what you mean when you say, I have faith in Christ, what does that mean? What would you say? What is the gospel? Can you answer that question? I hope so. How is the message of the gospel related to faith in a believer? And where does faith come from? And how does it work in our lives? Last week, we looked at the faith of Abraham and focused on Genesis 15. And specifically, our aim was to see that Abraham's faith wasn't simply in a promise or in an idea. His faith wasn't in himself like our newsboy friend. But his faith was in Christ himself the Word of God, the second person of the Trinity. And this morning we will look at Paul's argument to show us that the object of Abraham's faith is the very same object of faith for all who are truly the sons and daughters of God. We'll spend our time this morning in Galatians 3, and if you're using the blue ESV Bible in the seat back in front of you, your page number is 937. Help us with context here. We're going to read chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, all the way through verse 9. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun in the, by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now at this point in the letter, 
that Paul is writing to the Galatians, he shifts his focus back to the doctrine of justification by faith. He's going to look further into the work of the Holy Spirit and the sanctification of believers later on in his letter, but now he wants to show the Galatians something of the historical basis of justification by faith. And as a people with a historical heritage rooted in the Protestant Reformation, it's important that we understand that justification by faith is not a doctrine of the 16th century. Now surely that was a doctrine that was sort of rediscovered by Martin Luther and was at the forefront of importance when it came to working through everything that the the reformers were about. But we need to see along with the Galatians, that justification by faith is the way God has saved mankind from the very beginning, ever since the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. So Paul's point now is founded in a historical argument from the faith of Abraham. And the point he's wanting to make is our, in our first observation this morning is this from verse 6. Believing in Christ is now and always has been the only way of salvation. Let's look at verse 6 again. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, it's very important for us to remember the context in which Paul is writing to the Galatians. The Judaizers were this religious group who had infiltrated the churches in Galatia. They were convincing more than a few of these Gentile Christians that they not only needed to have faith in Christ, but they also needed to submit themselves to the Mosaic law and specifically circumcision and dietary laws. It was a subtle addition to the gospel. But it was an addition nonetheless. And so Paul calls it another gospel altogether. Anything added to the gospel makes the gospel something other than what it truly is. So Paul is, to, is continuing to build the case for the truthfulness and the purity of the gospel that he has preached and that the Galatians believed over and against that which they were now hearing and being tempted to accept from the Judaizers. So Paul here is strengthening his argument against the Judaizers and their false gospel by reaching back into history to Abraham to show that Abraham's faith, like our faith as Christians, was in Christ alone. In other words, Abraham was not saved by his works. He was not saved because of his fulfillment of the law, but Abraham was justified by Christ alone. And this idea of justification by faith alone is baffling to people. You'll often hear people say things like, you mean to tell me that all anyone has to do is believe? Well, yes, so long as we're defining what it means to believe in the same way, then yes. Repent of your sins and believe on Christ and you will be saved. Yes, but what else? You see, it's our, it's our very nature to want to earn our place. And so it turns us upside down when we're confronted with this reality that we can't earn our place. And our culture really rubs against the primary ideas that we have about what it is to receive everything. 
If you work hard enough, if you put in the hours, you put forward enough effort, you will get what you're striving for. That's the American way of thinking. But that's not the gospel way of thinking. The gospel is depending upon works, sure enough, but not your works. The gospel is depending fully and completely and totally on the works of Christ for your righteousness, for your right standing before God. Because no matter how hard you try, you cannot live up to what God has commanded. From day one of your conception, we just read in Psalm 51, your nature was bent towards sin. And from day one of your conception, you were unable to earn your way into God's favor. And if you are to have everlasting life, you have no other option but to believe on Jesus Christ. The only hope for anyone is faith and trust in Jesus' perfect law-fulfilling life and death and resurrection. It's depending upon him. And it is the only thing that will see us through the grave onto life everlasting. Jesus has accomplished all that is necessary that we might live. And so the gospel is depending on his work and his righteousness given to you that you might live instead of depending on your own flawed, imperfect, sin-soaked works. But the Jews had just as difficult a time seeing that as we do. It's natural human nature to assume that our salvation requires us to work. So there's actually an abundance of of really fascinating Jewish writings that try to answer the question for the Jews. Why did God choose Abraham? God is good, and God is just, and God is fair. So in their minds, and articulated in their writings, is the idea that Abraham must have been a different kind of person than everyone else. So you can go and read these sort of backstories about Abraham that were made up to rationalize for the Jews why Abraham was better than everyone else, why God chose him to do what he did. So for example, there's a story in a writing called Pseudophilo. That's a story about building the building of the Tower of Babel. And as the story goes, the people gathered together to make plans to build the Tower to Heaven, to make a name for themselves... But amongst the people, this is the part that's not in the Bible, there was Abraham and 11 others who stood up against the plan. So those 12 men were given seven days to change their minds, and after seven days, if they didn't change their minds, they would be burned in a fiery furnace. By night, a sort of guard guy came to the 12 men in prison and he told them before the seventh day arrived, he would open the gates and let them run free and escape to the mountains so they wouldn't have to face the fiery furnace. And he would claim that the gates were broken open by an angel. Eleven of the men thanked the guard that they found favor in his eyes. But guess who didn't buy it? Abraham. Even if it cost him his life, he would not flee. He wasn't going to bow down based upon a lie. And so in the end, the great leader became very angry because those 11 men had left, but he still had Abraham, and he decided to throw him into the fiery furnace. And here's how it ends. And they took him and built a furnace and lit it. 
and they threw bricks burned with fire into the furnace. And then the leader, Joktan, with great emotion, took Abram and threw him along with the bricks into the fiery furnace. But God caused a great earthquake, and the fire gushing out of the furnace leaped forth in flames and sparks of flame. And it burned all of those standing around inside of the furnace. And all those who were burned in that day were 83,500. But there was not the least injury to Abram from the burning of the fire. And Abram came up out of the furnace, and the fiery furnace collapsed. And Abram was saved and went away to the eleven men who were hidden in the mountains. And he reported to them everything that had happened to him. And they came down with him from the mountains, rejoicing in the name of the Lord. And no one who met them frightened them that day. That's quite a story. The problem is, it's not true. But their idea was that they needed to present Abraham as a great, righteous man who was worthy of God's choosing him because of his deeds, because of what he did. And this is just one example of many, probably hundreds of stories about Abraham that were written to communicate this very point. But Paul, especially in Romans 4, is sort of the companion passage to this place in Galatians 3. He challenges this idea that Abraham must have been chosen by God because of something special or righteous in him. The Jews really struggled with this idea that Abraham's righteous standing before God wasn't because of him, but it was because of the one in whom he believed. So they attempted to fill the silence with their own stories. But unlike the unanimous Jewish ideas about Abraham, Paul presents him not as the one righteous person worth calling and choosing, but rather as a man like everyone else, ungodly. And yet, God called him, declares that he is righteous, and grants his promises to him. So God's decision to choose Abraham is not anchored in Abraham or anything that he has done. God's decision to choose Abraham is anchored in something within God himself. In Romans 4, Paul proves his point, and really it's the same point he's alluding to here, that Abraham being justified and counted righteous couldn't have been because of any works for two reasons. First, because the text itself says Abraham was counted righteousness, uh, was, was counted righteous because he believed the Lord. But more specifically, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 come before Genesis 17. Why does that matter? Because Abraham is blessed by God in Genesis 12. He is counted as righteous in Genesis 15. And it's not until Genesis 17 that he is circumcised. In other words, it was while Abraham was yet uncircumcised that the blessings of God came to him. His being chosen by God was not based upon his external works. It was based upon God granting him the gift of faith that he might believe. But why did Paul see Abraham so differently than all of the Jews around him did? In fact, it would would not be a far stretch to assume that Paul uh, probably had the very same ideas about Abraham prior to his conversion when he was a Jew. 
So why a different idea now? Well, all of this gets to the very heart of Paul's story. Remember, he was destroying Christians when God saved him and declared him righteous, and he was completely unworthy. And this becomes the story of the Bible that Paul sees everywhere. So the thing that that shapes Paul's reading of the Old Testament is what God has done in Jesus Christ. That's what distinguishes him from all of the other Jewish writings that were trying to justify Abraham's being chosen. Paul doesn't try to justify it in anything other than God chose Abraham, who's just like you and me. You cannot have a proper Christian reading of the Old Testament without Jesus Christ. And Paul saw it, and he exposed it, and he objected those who were holding on to some hope that their works would save them. And friends, there are some of you here this morning who are confident that your sin is too great for you to ever be right with God. You assume yourself to be unworthy of salvation because of who you are and what you have done. And I want to tell you that you are right, that you are unworthy of salvation because of who you are and what you have done. But God's concern is not primarily who you are and what you have done. His concern is who Christ is and what Christ has done and whether or not you're trusting in him alone that you might be counted as righteous on the day of judgment. That is God's concern. And so Abraham's story and Paul's story can be your story. You are who you are and you have done what you have done because your great hope is in yourself and all of your efforts to be a good person. And it only makes you transgress the law of God more and more. But when your hope and your faith and your trust is in Christ alone, he credits all that Christ has done to your account and he will declare that you are not guilty. Faith in Christ alone, that's what saves us. Not being circumcised, not eating the right kinds of food, not teaching Sunday school or going to church or feeding the hungry or being pro-life or going on mission trips. All of these are great things, but none of them are the gospel. The gospel is faith in Christ alone. But let's be clear on another thing. Faith is not the one human contribution to salvation. That would just make the human a partial subject of their own salvation. Instead, Paul is pointing us to the absolute fact that Jesus and Jesus alone is the Savior. So justification is not by any work. It is by faith. But the question remains, what is faith? Well, faith is not our contribution to our salvation. In Romans, Paul actually contrasts having, uh, having works and having faith. Faith is is simply seeing the mountain that God calls us to climb and continuing to stand at the bottom and looking up and saying, I cannot do it. And when I'm finally at the place where I stop trying to do it on my own, I can then say, but God in Christ has done it. The impossible has come true. And God has done what he said he would do, and only he can do. And now I can trust in that. 
So faith says no to me, but says yes to God. God is the one who promises. God is the one who does the impossible. And at the sight of sin, he creates salvation. At the sight of nothing, he creates something. At the sight of death, he creates life. And faith is the admission that I cannot justify myself, but only God himself can do it. And so I must trust in him. So faith is not a choice. Faith is simply a receiving of that which God has done for you and for me. The impossible has been made possible with God. We're not talking about being sick and needing a doctor or fatally wounded and needing a treatment or treading water and needing rescue. We are dead. And from the very beginning, we are dead. And from the very beginning, our only hope is that Jesus will say, come forth that we might have life and rise up from the grave and walk in the newness of life. So you see, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, not because he was smarter or more holy or more worthy or better looking or anything else. It was because God showed him mercy and God gave him grace and God granted him faith and Abraham received it and was counted righteous even though he, like you and like me, was a transgressor of God's holy law. Well, Paul goes on in his description of Abraham to explain our second point this morning and that is that all believers, both Jew and Gentile, are sons and daughters of Abraham. Look again at verses 7 through 9. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now remember, the Judaizers are constantly beating the same drum for the Galatians. If you Gentiles want to belong to God, you need to become children of Abraham. You need to get into Abraham's family line so the blessings of salvation can be yours. And the only way to do that is to be circumcised like Abraham was. But Paul is not willing to go down that road. He really raises a question that he's going to take a lot of time to answer, but he eventually gets toward the end of it in Galatians 4. And the question is this, who are the true children of Abraham? But here, Paul raises a counter-argument to the error of the Judaizers. All right, if you think being a son of Abraham is such a big deal, let's look at Abraham. And we see what Paul has already pointed to us. How was Abraham declared righteous? Was it because he forsook the fatherland, his family, and all of his friends back in Ur, and he went on to where God called him? Was it because he accepted circumcision and observed the law? Was it because he was ready at the command of God to sacrifice his son Isaac? Of course not. It was solely on the basis of believing God long before most of these other things even happened. 
And in fact, we can say of Abraham, although he became the father of the Jewish nation, he was justified when he was still a Gentile. And Paul says to the Galatians, just like you Galatians, who were justified and received the Holy Spirit through the hearing, by faith, not through works of the law. Paul's words are a precision-guided missile into the theology of the Judaizers. All of their hope and all of their assurance was wrapped up in one thing, that they were Jews by birth and they were children of Abraham. But Paul says, being of Abraham by the flesh means nothing. The true children of Abraham are those who believe, those who ground their relationship with God in Christ and thus the very existence itself of the basis of faith. This is why Paul says in Romans 9, not all of Israel is Israel. In other words, it's not those who are Jewish by the flesh who are the children of God. It is those who have faith in Christ. These are the true people of God. These are the true sons and daughters of Abraham. These are the ones who have claim to the promises of God. Martin Luther wrote, Descent by blood does not create children of Abraham in God's eyes. Abraham was the father of faith, and he was justified before God, not because he had physical descendants, but because he believed Therefore, anyone who wants to be a child of Abraham, the believer, must also believe. His descendants of flesh and blood have inherited what flesh and blood have to offer, which is nothing but sin and death. Remember, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees on this very issue in John chapter 8, he told them this, something along these lines. You know, If Abraham were really your father, you would be more like him. But you, you are a lot like the devil, which tells me that it's he who's your father and not Abraham. Now that line didn't make it through the final edit of the book in Winning Friends and Influencing People. But this is the very point. They were Jews by descent. They were children of Abraham by flesh. But Jesus told them, Abraham's not your father. Satan is your father because you do not have the faith of Abraham. You see, Paul's point is Jesus's point. The Galatians shared Abraham's faith and they were his children by that faith. They were the heirs of all of the blessings promised to the offspring of Abraham. In other words, those who enjoy salvation are Abraham's spiritual children and have become such in exactly the same manner by which they have become the children of God, just like Abraham, by faith. And he's going to spend the, next, uh, the rest of this chapter in the chapter 4 dealing with that. But Paul, being very careful and meticulous in his argumentation, roots all of this, once again, in a historical reality. He reminds us in verse 8 of something foreseen long ago in the scriptures. And it's a quotation from Genesis 12, verse 3. Paul writes, 
and the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And I love the language Paul uses here. He says it was the gospel that was preached beforehand to Abraham. And it's through that very same gospel that the people of this world will be blessed, through which the people of God will be justified. And it's the New Testament that makes sense of this for us. A Savior would come, and he would come through the line of Abraham. In and by the gospel, he would be presented to all the nations as an object of saving faith, and people would believe in him, and as a result of believing him, they would be justified. It would be counted to them as righteousness. That is what was foreseen. That is what was promised. That is what is spoken of many times and in many ways. That is what has happened in Jesus Christ. Justification by faith has come to have a worldwide geography. It's not just for some people to hear. It's for all men to hear on every square inch of the globe because it's the only hope that communicates to everyone. Every man, woman, or child is commanded to hear and to believe. This is exactly what happened in Galatia during Paul's first journey through. By faith, in the Jesus who Paul preached to them, the Galatians became heirs to the same blessings of justification that Abraham enjoyed. And it's no different today. All over the world, helpless sinners today are hearing of a Savior to whom they can go in their desperate need. A Savior who pardons them and clothes them with his perfect righteousness the moment they believe on him. So then, are you of the faith? Do you share in the faith of Abraham? Is Jesus Christ the sole object of your faith? If so, then you are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith, because it is those of faith who are the sons and daughters of Abraham. And it is the sons and daughters of Abraham who are the sons and daughters of God. We give thanks to God that we need not work for our salvation that we need not put forth all of our efforts for our justification, but that we can rest in Christ alone.